Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the study of antiquity and the Middle Ages. As always, I am your host, Nick Barksdale, and today we are joined once again by a very special guest. Most of you know her by now. You love her work. You love what she does. You love it when she's on the channel. And I welcome here today, Dr. Louise Hitchcock. Dr. Hitchcock, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Pleasure as always. We have a very special episode here for you today, and we are going to be exploring the history of the Minones. Who were they? Where did they come from? Where did they go? We're going to cover a variety of topics. Though we will touch on architecture a little bit, I wanted to also drop a special hint right now that we are actually going to be doing an entire episode in the future on the history of Minone architecture. And I know many of you are going to love that one as well. But right now, we're going to jump right into it. We are going to take you into an awesome time period, into an awesome culture and civilization and Dr. Hitchcock is going to walk us through it. So I want to start with the term Minoan. Where does it come from? What is the etymological history of this term? Hmm. The word Minoan is um, a term assigned to the Minoan civilization by Sir Arthur Evans, who was the um, excavator at Knossos. Uh, the first excavated of the so-called Minoan palaces, and he based the term on King Minos, so the people of Minos. Um, it really has no basis in archaeology or in history other than the modern history of the subject. When it comes to the islands that are going to be automatically associated with the Minoans, what do we know about the earliest settlers of this region. Okay, there was a small Paleolithic settlement in the southeast that was recently discovered. However, um, whoever these people were, they didn't stay um, and put down a foothold. Um, the earliest permanent settlers uh, arrived in Crete, probably at Knossos, around 7000 BCE. And it's believed that they come from Anatolia based on the type of uh, plant food they brought with them, which is a, a bread wheat complex. Um, the bread wheat complex comes from Anatolia, not from Europe or anywhere else. And so that indicates an Anatolian origin. And also some DNA analyses indicate that there were what they call similar haplogroups to Anatolia, maybe also to Europe. You can't get this sort of refined uh, sourcing with this, but it also helps confirm the idea that's based mainly on the introduction of the bread wheat complex. And the thing is, it's, it's not so important where they came from, but what they became in terms of after they settled in Crete. They went on to form an extremely unique uh, civilization. And when do these people eventually become who we define as the Minoans? Well, it depends on who you ask. But um, what you have in the third millennium BCE, between 3000 and 2000, this is an era we call the early Minoan period, but it's also known as the early Bronze Age. And you have a lack of what we would call cultural integration on the island. 
And what I mean by that is if you go around to different sites in that period, you see different pottery styles. And they're all very nice, but they're different. And you start to see like small villages um, developing. And you also start to see the importation of raw materials from the East. Crete itself was very poor in things like uh, metals, ivory, what we would think of as exotic goods. And so those would be imported. And you start to see these large communal built family tombs in this time period. So you start to see the emergence of complexity because to build a monumental tomb, you have to have somebody to organize the work and to oversee it and so forth. And you start to see the acquisition in tombs of these exotic imported goods made out of carved stone, metal, jewelry, and you start to see things like diadems and mace heads. And these are the type of items we associate with the emergence of authority. And then you, it's what, you, what seem to be the first palaces start to emerge in about 1900 BCE. And this is an era known as the first palace period. And we don't have a good idea of what these palaces look like because most of them were rebuilt or remodeled when a big earthquake struck around 1700. But you also start to see at this time the emergence of a unified pottery style known as the Kamari's pottery style. And the Kamari style is named for the Kamari's cave where it was first found. This is on Mount Ida in the in the slide I have is my background. You can actually see it uh, right there, that little black spot. And Kamari's where pottery is a wheel made decorated pottery used mostly for pouring and drinking vessels associated with communal feasting. And what you get are a lot of sort of uh, geometric uh, spiral motifs in orange and white on a black background. It's a very striking looking pottery. You also start to get the first Minoan writing system, which is sort of a hieroglyphic style of system. And by that, I don't mean it was Egyptian writing, but it was um, using images um, to create um, some kind of inscription and we can't read it. And it's toward the end of this period when we start to get a new type of writing system known as Linear A. But it's really, I, I tend to associate with the um, appearance of the Minoan palaces, um, this new pottery, the emergence of writing, the emergence of monumental architecture. Um, you start to see wheel-made mass-produced pottery, um, metallurgy becoming more widespread. And it's also around this time, around 1900, that the Minoans obtained the deep hulled ship with a mast. And this is really significant because before this, everybody in that region in the Aegean Sea are traveling with oared longboats, which aren't as fast and don't give you the reach that an oared gal that a masted galley does. And this technology came from the Near East and it enabled the Minoans to shrink maritime space and really become part of uh, the other Near Eastern civilizations that and Egypt that were um, full-blown civilizations about a thousand years earlier. When it comes to the people that we are going to define as the Minoans, 
What are the earliest references we have to them and who wrote those references? Mm, that's a good question. I would, I would say the earliest references we have to them come both from the Mari archives in Mesopotamia and from um, ancient Egypt. The Egyptians refer to them as Keftiu, and in the Mari tablets, they're referred to as Kaptaru, which would be Cretan. And um, later in the Bible, Crete is referred to as Kaftor. So you have Keftiu, Kaptaru, Kaftor, and all these things seem to be associated with the word Crete, or close to the word Crete. And these would be the earliest historical references. And I'll tell you kind of a funny one. Um, somehow a pair of Minoan shoes ended up with the king of Mari, and he complained that he didn't like them. We have no idea why. Apparently he had really refined tastes. <laughs> I would love to have a pair of Minoan shoes. That's all I'm saying. Oh, who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? <laughs> or maybe they didn't fit him, and that was uh, why he made the complaint. <laughs> Let's talk language and writing. Do we know what language they spoke? And what do we know about their writing systems and methods? We don't. Um, one of my former students, Dr. Brent Davis, who you should get on, he's probably, um, he's got a background in linguistics and he's probably one of the world's authority, authorities now on the Minoan Linear A language. But because we only have hundreds of Minoan inscriptions compared to thousands of Mycenaean ones, it remains undeciphered. We refer to the script used as Linear A, and the Linear A script was borrowed by the Mycenaean Greeks to write their language, and they call it Linear B. And in Cyprus, it's also borrowed to write their language, which we call Cypro-Minoan. Um, that doesn't mean that the, the, the script is roughly the same. Um, it's kind of like today we use the same alphabet to write English, German, French, Italian, maybe with a few... Uh, diacritical marks added here or there, but one script, different languages. And we don't know what the Minoan language is. Um, a famous Semiticist, Cyrus Gordon, who worked on um, deciphering Ugaritic, tried to claim that the Minoan language was Semitic. And there are what we would call a few Semitic loan words, like the word kuro, meaning total. But if it was actually a Semitic language, then we should be able to read all of it, and we can't. Um, so Brent's idea, and that's kind of maybe I nudged him in this direction a little bit, is that it's akin to Sumerian. It's not the same language, but Sumerian was a language unrelated to any language living or dead. We call that a, a language isolate. And it seems pretty likely that um, the Minoan language was also a language isolate. And what Brent has been able to do, though, is determine some things like suffixes or prefixes, but um, certain particles that functioned as those things, but not still not to really read the text. And the Minoan language had two uses. Unlike many ancient languages, which were often initially just used for administration and record keeping. Um, the Minoans also used uh, the Linear A script for um, 
writing cultic texts. We have an inscription on the back of a gold hairpin. We have an inscription in a cup in octopus ink. And we know from the Near East that cups with inscriptions written in them were magic bowls. So it was kind of probably some kind of incantation that had a magical purpose. And then what we do have are a lot of what we call carved stone libation bowls that have inscriptions on them. And these were probably ritual formulas. And they were left in um, Minoan religious spaces which usually took the form of sacred caves or peak sanctuaries located on Minoan mountains. And usually, not all of these mountains, but many of them were associated with the palaces in that the palaces would be oriented on them. And maybe we'll save that more for the other talk, but uh, you have this cultic use. And then you have tablets where they were written on tablets and the tablets weren't baked. And this is also a reason why we don't have so many of them. Um, we have just two archives where we had large groups found. One at Catazacro in East Crete and one at the Minoan Villa in Ayatriata in Southern Crete. Now we have another piece of evidence that they also wrote on parchment. Um, we have some ceilings. These are the clay uh, pieces of clay that would be used to seal something and would have an, a stamped symbol on it. Just like we have the Great Seal of the United States with the eagle holding um, the arrows, um, you would have various types of seals and ceilings and these were all decorated and many of them give, try to give a religious narrative, although we don't totally understand it. But back to the, back to the curved ceilings, they have a string mark on them indicating they were used to seal a tied up piece of parchment that has since disintegrated. We also have another type of sealing known as a packet seal. And this would be a sealing, and if you look on the other side, there'd be an indentation where a folded up piece of parchment would have been stuck into the clay. And that when it reached its destination, it would have been broken and the parchment read. And of course, now the parchment has disintegrated. So it indicates that some of their writings for the administrative purposes were on parchments. And so again, just to reiterate, Minoan writing had two uh, main functions, ritual formulas and um, admi probably administrative texts. Now, what do we know about the hierarchical structure of this society? <laughs> we're chuckling. We know nothing about anything, but um, seriously, we don't, we aren't really sure. There's been almost no speculation because Aegean archaeologists don't like to speculate. We understand the Mycenaean hierarchy very well because it's actually spelled out in the tablets. Um, it's been suggested that there was a priest king, that was Evan's idea, but that's based on a fresco that would, is actually three or four frescoes. Um, one of them female that he reconstructed as a single image. Um, you've ha we've had people say it was priests, that women played a dominant role because you get a lot of very um, pro prominent portrayals of women in Minoan art. And actually, this is like a, a scoop here. You get to hear it first. I'm actually working on a paper of um, the Minoan bureaucracy as the first deep state. And 
I'm going to be arguing in this paper that um, you have a faceless bureaucracy ruled by groups of priests and priestesses who were also the administrators. And I'm basing this on several kinds of evidence, one being the way they're portrayed often as faceless in their seal iconography. And also when I went back and traveled around Crete after finishing my PhD, I wanted to see if, you know, if there's anything I missed that struck me as different. And one thing I noticed is that so many Minoan villas and so-called palaces have benched rooms. A room with benches indicates a group of people sitting. And I think you had a sort of religious bureaucracy that was administering the island. In fact, I'm working on this poster this weekend. It's going to be displayed at the American Schools of Oriental Research meeting. And then as a second part to this next year, I'm going to make an argument uh, probably at the International Conference on Cretan Studies is that what brought um, Crete down were various um, individuals becoming more prominent and vying for kingship of the island. And I base this again on a couple of seal images and a bronze figurine that portray very prominent Minoan males. Now, it's always been argued that you could not identify a ruler in Minoan art based on the imagery not representing any particular features. However, if you look at Mesopotamian art, if we didn't have the inscriptions, we would not be able to identify many of their rulers either. And so I think um, Aegean archeologists and art historians have really been looking at the art through the wrong lens. So what I think that you have are these administrative groups of families forming a faceless bureaucracy, a kind of deep state, and then um, various individuals starting to vie for prominence. And when I say deep state, um, it's a fun term, it's a modern term. However, um, the idea of a deep state is not really anything new. Back when I was doing Political Science 100, this is really the career civil service. And the career civil service um, continues on regardless of which political party is in power. And if they are happy with the policies of the group in power, they will do their best to implement those policies well. And if they're not, they will just slow walk everything until the next president or prime minister comes in and they kind of survive it and just keep going. And so by a deep state, what I mean is a steady state or a group of career bureaucrats. That is absolutely fascinating. I would love to do an episode just on that. I'm telling you, when that paper is done, I would love to do that. Okay. that would be well, this is my first foray. I'll send you the poster when it's done. Yeah. Wow. That is really interesting. And that really covers, that was actually going to be my next question. And as that is, do we know anything about Minoan government? And that is really, really interesting. Do you have anything you want to add to that before we move on? Um, not so much. This is an idea I'm still exploring. And there won't be in terms of, you know, what, I, what I'm going to say is how the palaces were administered and how religion was used. And I'm also using a new book by an anthropologist on secret societies. And we, when we think of secret societies, again, we think of like the Illuminati 
or the Bilderbergers or the John Birchers or the New World Order, or now it's QAnon, but um, secret societies form part of all cultures going back to hunter-gatherers. Of course, these are not one secret society with a single uh, agenda, but it's groups that come to power in every culture that sort of form a network to maintain their dominance. But because we don't have written texts or good documents beyond, you know, I'm, I'm making my argument based on um, seal iconography and on um, architectural remains. So I can't get into a whole lot more detail other than to sort of say, this is what I think was going on. Wow, that is just mind-blowing. I love that, and I can't wait to read it. And I know many of my subscribers are going to feel the exact same way. Oh, good. And you've got the scoop here now. Now, earlier, you had briefly touched on women in Minoan society. And is there anything you'd like to add to this before we move on? Yeah, I would. Women have always been portrayed very prominently in Minoan art and in positions of sort of dominance. And what I mean by dominance, they're not like whipping somebody, but often on seals and ceilings, again, they're portrayed. Um, maybe you have a central female who's bigger than everybody else or who stands above everybody else. And then there's a very famous one called the Mother of the Mountains. And it's a Minoan female on top of a mountain and she's stretching out a staff like that. We call that the, the gesture of command. And she's flanked by two lions. And because lions are powerful, you know, they never use bunny rabbits, these uh, people. We call her a mistress of animals. And then she's being saluted by a Minoan male. And it's this and other ceilings that um, gave Evans and others suggested that Crete was a matriarchy that women were dominant, that there was a single goddess with different aspects to her, and that she was the paramount of all of Crete. Um, now, there are a few problems with this, in that having women in prominent positions doesn't necessarily indicate women ruled. Um, a good example is the goddess Athena of Athens. She was a goddess of love and war, She's often portrayed with weapons, and women were more oppressed in ancient Athens than in just about any other ancient society. So it, what it does show is that you had Minoan female elites that were portrayed prominently. And it's funny that, you know, you always get these references to mother goddesses. You get Mycenaean women portrayed as mothers. You never see, you almost never see children in Minoan art. Um, you do on the island of Thera, but for the most part, you see adults usually in their physical prime. You don't get children and you don't get old folks. Um, there's one figurine of a male, I'm getting a little off topic here, but he's portrayed as rather portly. And that's taken to indicate he was middle-aged. But for it, that's like an exception. Um, mainly what you get are women, males and females, portrayed at like the height of their um, physical beauty. And since the idea of Evans that it was a matriarchy and women ruled over the island, we've now got a couple of ceilings that depict men in prominent positions. One shows, uh, it's from Western Crete, site called Hanya, and it's a ceiling called the Master Impression. 
and it depicts a male standing on top a group of buildings. It's not clear whether it's a wall or a palace. And his hair is flowing. And he's also extending his arm, holding a staff in this gesture of command position. Then there's a second ceiling. Also, I think it's from Hanya. And it shows a man with short hair. And he's standing on a pair of bullhorns. We refer to them as horns of consecration. And he's flanked by a winged goat. And on the other side, by a Minoan genius. Uh, the Minoan genius is an icon that was borrowed from Egyptian art and then uh, modified to represent a more Minoan aesthetic. But the fact that you have these two fantastic creatures flanking him puts him in what we would call the realm of the supernatural, which could indicate he's divine. However, I would always say not so fast because Egyptian kings were also divine and they were kings. So there are a number of ways you can interpret this. Unfortunately, they forgot to give us the rule book when they were giving us um, all these images. And as we leave off with that, I'm going to ask a question slightly ahead of order, and that is, what do we know about Minoan religion? We know that they, um, many, their main religious sites were in the landscape, um, these sort of mountaintop or peak sanctuaries, and also caves. Unfortunately, like so many things in Greece, a lot of the peak sanctuary material is not published. But what it seems to indicate is that you have a variety of different types of offerings at different sites. For example, some sites have mostly animal figurines. Some have just mainly human limbs, which would, might indicate some sort of healing cult, like the cult of Asclepius, where you later get the same thing in classical Greece. And in fact, this is really cool. When we were living in Cyprus, we visited this church where people left wax limbs, like arms, uh, breasts, legs, full-blown humans. I bought myself two wax babies. And these were sort of the same thing as leaving an effigy for a healing cult. And so that would be one. And then we know others were controlled by the palaces um, in that they had... Um, some simple architecture and symbols such as horns of consecration. And so it was mainly these places in the landscape, but I also argued in my PhD, and this is for the next talk probably, that the palaces were not really palaces, but that they were temples, each revolving around a different localized deity and connected to different economic uh, foci. And I based this reinterpretation of them based on my background in Mesopotamian history and archaeology. Uh, most people who work on the Aegean, they come out of classics background. I came out of a Near Eastern archaeology background, so for me, it was a lateral move. And when you look at ancient Sumer, which is the earliest civilization in Mesopotamia, the first monumental buildings are temples. And you would have um, sort of people working on Crete, and they always say, you know, mystified, we only have these palaces. Where are the temples? I believe the palaces were the temples. And that they also, I, I actually have an article on this, how they have um, features that reference features in the landscape, which sort of showed control over the landscape and also made them pilgrimage centers. 
and to my subscribers because she has talked about some wonderful topics and some awesome articles that she has written that I also can't recommend enough. Check out the links in the video description below and it's going to take you to her academia page. It can be downloaded for free, easy access. They are really fantastic and you can get an even deeper insight into the subjects that we all love. And so we know that there is a lot of mystery surrounding Minoan religion, religious uh -huh. practices, so on and so forth. Does uh -huh. this also mean that we don't know very much about specific deities that they may have held in high regard? Um, we don't. And like I said, it used to be thought that there was a single goddess with many different aspects worshipped. In my argument that the palaces were temples, I make an argument that actually... Knossos was the site where a weather god such as Zeus was worshipped, and I base this on the fact that in Mesopotamian um, archaeology, their weather god crowned with bullhorns, but also later Zeus, and Crete is believed to have uh, has several sites associated with Zeus, um, also could turn into a bull. So I argue that Knossos was the site of a bull cult, and um, Katazakro, I argue, based on various features connected with water and trade, that it was the site of a deity connected with the sea, such as Mesopotamian Enki or later classical Greek Poseidon. And again, when we do the second one, I can make uh, more of an argument based on that. But otherwise, you know, it's like we have these uh, seals that show what might be religious or political iconography. I, being Having a background in political science, I, I I tend not to divide the political from the religious, but to see them as working uh, together. And in the ancient world, I mean, medieval world, and even now that totally makes sense. You know, not much has really changed in that regard for thousands of years. <laughs> yeah. Can I add something here? This, yeah. the way we tend to divide secular and religious. Now, a lot of that comes out of the post-industrial age where you had people working during the week and you had kind of Sunday turned into a like God's day. And as we become getting more and more technological, more and more industrial, we tend to separate this sort of, uh, we create these categories se separating the um, spiritual and the political even more. But you don't get this kind of separation, let's say in pre in, in even today in contemporary pre-industrial um, agro-based societies, there tends to be more of a, of a unity, um, and we've kind of become divorced from that. And so this is where, you know, I've, I've done a lot of study of anthropology, and anthropology doesn't necessarily tell you how the past was, but it helps you get your mental framework out of the um, post-industrialized present and become aware of a lot of different and sometimes what might seem strange and bizarre ways of thinking about things that makes it a little easier to sort of take your mental framework into uh, more ancient ways of thinking. As we approach our economy portion of the episode, I wanted to ask a specific question first, and that is, do we know if the Minoans own slaves? There was no evidence for that. There's some indication the Mycenaeans did, and I could talk about that later when we discuss piracy because that's part of it, and slave owning was a big part of piracy. Um, 
I can't see any evidence for it at all on Crete, but that doesn't mean you didn't have people working on behalf of the palaces and maybe working very long hours. The only thing we have that actually really is a good representation of workers is a vase known as the harvester vase from Hagia Triata. And it shows a, a sort of a portly man in a cloak leading uh, a group. They look like they look like they're marching like soldiers and they're carrying tools over their shoulder and they look like they're singing and they're happy. And I like to always juxtapose it with a picture of 19th century slavery in America showing slaves dancing and playing the banjo happy in their in their sort of role as uh, workers, but I'm not, I don't think these were slaves. I think they were just um, workers. And there's no reason to assume that they were, that um, Crete needed a large population of slaves. Typically when you get slaves in the Bronze Age, it's often a temporary condition. Um, it's not something you're born into or singled out based on your ethnicity. It usually means your town was captured in a battle and the people that weren't killed were made into slaves. And it could often be um, a condition that you could purchase your way out of or um, get out of it some other way. Now let's talk a particular favorite topic of mine, and that is trade. How extensive was Minoan trade? And who are some of the key players that they interacted with directly? Okay, well, I already mentioned uh, the Cretan shoes in Mari, but uh, I don't think they had a big shoe business going on. Um, we do know they exported textiles. And we know this from seeing, um, actually, in Egyptian uh, rock-cut tombs, you have these paintings on the wall that look like a tent, uh, a textile tent. And the textile imitates Minoan textile patterns. We don't have... A, much in the way of Minoan textiles ourselves. What we have are weaving tools, but we also have iconography that give us a good idea how the Minoans dressed and uh, what their clothing looked like. And it was heavily patterned. And so I'd say textiles could be one thing. Probably they traded wool, probably um, grapes or wine, maybe oil. Um, because these were all things they could easily grow. And they needed to have some, and also their decorated pottery. They needed to have something to trade because, as I mentioned earlier, Crete was poor in raw materials. They had to get copper and tin to make bronze, to have bronze tools. If they wanted jewelry, and they were great with uh, jewelry workmanship, they had to have access to gold. Gold would have had to have come from Egypt. Um, in the Minoan palace on the east that I mentioned, uh, they found about 17 oxide ingots, as well as an elephant tusk and an ivory tusk. And ivory could only come from Syria or from North Africa. So they would have been heavily engaged in trade to get things that, um, that they did not have look access to on the island. Again, I like to think of them as being like the Sumerians. You see a lot of fabulous Sumerian art, um, but the Sumerians were also very poor in um, um, valuable raw materials like metals and lapis lazuli and things like that. So I think, you know, they would get a hold of the raw materials, make something really nice out of it that gave it value added, and then exchange it. And we also have famous Egyptian tomb paintings 
particularly in the tombs of Rekmuray, and I know I'm going to massacre this name, Menkepersam, uh, which show processions of Aegean, probably diplomats or traders, and they're carrying goods like um, animal-headed cups or ritons. And one is even carrying an oxide ingot, which is very funny because they're carrying something that they had to get from somewhere else, but also bolts of clothing and things like that. And you see a lot of Minoan made objects on the Greek mainland before the emergence of the Mycenaean palaces. And you start to find a bit of pottery in the Levant and in Cyprus, but I'd say you get more in Egypt. And now what do we know about their military or even more so, what do we know about violence in Minoan society? <laughs> Again, nothing, but uh, almost nothing. We, we know more than we did. Um, there used to be this idea that the Mycenaeans were a male, logical, warlike, masculine culture um, that was clear and logical because their palaces are, have a very simplified layout and also they were fortified. Um, and you get a lot of what, what I would call agonistic scenes, scenes of fighting and hunting. And that the Cretes were a peaceful, feminine, hippie-like culture because all you had are the Minoan palaces and no fortifications. Um, now that I've said that, I want to give, uh, sort of make, draw out a little more complexity. The era of the, the heyday of the Minoan palaces was from 1900 to 1450 BCE. Um, the heyday of the Mycenaean palaces is probably from about 1465, 1435 to 1200 BCE. So they were acting in totally different time periods in terms of fortifying or not fortifying. Also, we do have one fortification wall on Crete from the Minoan era. It's at the small palace site at Petros outside of Satia on the East Coast. I actually worked at that site as a student, so I was very lucky to participate in the excavation of one of these uh, Minoan buildings, but they have a fortification wall there. Also, we know in the earlier periods before the Minoan palaces at strategic points, there were signal fires, like in um, Lord of the Rings, where they would be have a signal fire on top of a mountain, and that could also indicate some sort of uh, concern with security. And when I was a student, I never really paid a lot of attention to the landscape because I was, it was, it was very sort of old fashioned. You get a blinkered look where you're looking just at the buildings and the things and not so much at the landscape. And uh, not about 10 years ago when I was on Crete, I went around, took a look at where all the buildings are sited. They might not be fortified, but they're in very strategic places like um, on river valleys. River valleys are places where you could have uh, I won't say they were pirates, but you could have people up to no good sort of uh, hiding out and ambushing. Um, and so you, need, you tend to get the big Minoan sites near important coastal centers and ports. And I think more what they were doing was establishing a presence to keep people away rather than having fortifications. And you know, most of us who study the past, we know that fortifications rarely worked anyway. But I think they were sort of establishing a presence. And also, the Minoan palaces have a very complicated layout. No two are alike. So if you were an outsider and you got into one with the sort of maze-like or labyrinthine layout, you could be sort of have a couple doors closed and be trapped. Um, and so I, I think there were not very welcoming places to 
outsiders unless you had a guide. So I think it's the strategic location of these buildings and also their um, maritime presence that kept uh, people at bay. And now there's also a couple of pieces of Minoan art that show violence. Um, one is, and this is why it's probably my favorite piece because it actually does show violence. There's a, a riton that is a, a, um, a ceremonial vessel, conical shape with a flow through hole called the boxer riton. And it's got several registers like comp panels in a comic book showing boxing activities. And then it shows, one of the registers shows bull leaping. And um, the man, he's not actually leaping over the bull, but he's impaled on the bull horns. And uh, that seems pretty violent to me. Um, and so I like the fact that it's like a, it's, it's not really that obvious, but it's a piece of violent Minoan art. And also this newly discovered uh, Griffin warrior tomb in Pylos, which is full with a lot of Minoan things, has a seal known as the combat agate. And it shows um, a person, a male in Minoan garb, and he's running a sword through someone with sort of more Mycenaean style short hair. And I like to call it a can of Minoan whoop ass because that's what it shows going on. And since then I've seen a, a few other seals that show similar type things. I happen to think that because you do have all this religious imagery and monumental architecture, I see that as a type of sort of, let's say, covert violence and that it shows their power. It demonstrates their power. It doesn't, it doesn't have to broadcast uh, to the world with a lot of violent images, but it sort of um, shows a more quiet appropriation of power. And it also communicates to me a fairly rigidly organized society where they didn't really brook anybody uh, uh, messing about let's say, but there is, no, there is no evidence for a military except for Thucydides in um, writing in fifth century Athens. He mentions a Minoan thalassocracy, that is a sea power. However, we don't, you know, how would Thucydides know this over a thousand years later? We don't know if this was just a legend or that it was something that he was drawing on to legitimize Athenian sea power. So it's kind of like, you know, people thinking they know today what happened a thousand years ago, even with all the writing things we have, our knowledge is imperfect. And so with that being said, do we know if there was a Minoan empire? To me, an empire indicates um, control over large land masses like you have the Assyrian Empire, you have Alexander's Empire. The Minoans had toeholds abroad, that's for sure. They had a, probably had a colony in what is today Miletus in Turkey. The Hittites referred to it as Milawanda. And this is based not just on pottery, although we have locally made Minoan pottery there. You have like the full cultural package with um, Minoan uh, linear A writing, frescoes, um, weaving implements, cooking ware, um, everything to indicate a colony there. And then it gets taken over by the Mycenaeans. And you also have um, evidence for important Minoan toehold on the island of Kithra leading into Laconia. 
Um, they were very much, and this gets into the trade issue, they were very much interested in Laconia because there are two types of colored stone that the Minoans liked from there that they carved into vessels. One is a green stone known as Lapis Lacedaemonius, and the other one is known as Rosso Antico, which is red. And they were bringing um, into Laconia, and I've, I've recently worked on a survey there, um, they were bringing into Laconia their pottery recipes, um, Minoan objects. We actually have a small Minoan inscription from the um, Mycenaean site of Ios Stephanos on the southern coast of Laconia. And then they had a peak sanctuary on the island of Kithra. Um, and a friend of mine excavates there. It's not published yet. But they found something like 115 bronze figurines, Minoan-style bronze figurines. And that's the totals, the entire number known from the island of Crete. And also the Noans were very um, heavily culturally influential in some of the Cycladic islands, particularly Akrotiri on Thera, where all the houses were actually modified to give them a more Minoan appearance. And the island of Kea, where you have a Minoan-style house. And um, the, these two islands form what we would call uh, the Western String, the westernmost group of the Cycladic Islands. Um, Cycladic means circle. It's a circle of islands. And what it really is is an underground mountain range. And the islands are the tops of the mountains peeking through the water. But these two islands in particular um, show strong Minoan influence. But I wouldn't call it an empire. It, it was more like a maybe a trading confederation. And finally, what happened to the Minoans? We have no idea, <laughs> as I keep saying. Um, around 1450, all the Minoan palaces with the except and villas, with the exception of those at Knossos, are violently destroyed. Um, the region depopulates, um, and you start to have uh, the Mycenaeans become the administrators of Knossos. You see their linear B writing system. You start to have Mycenaean, more Mycenaean-style megarons all over um, the island, um, but you still have evidence of some known culture hanging on, and so it seems to become a mixed society. So the really big question is, did the Mycenaeans invade Crete? And this used to be my belief, and some people believe it. Did they have civil war? Was there um, a, a weakening? Was there a civil war where the Mycenaeans then took advantage of it and swooped in and took control over Crete? Um, we don't know. And this idea has not really been seriously addressed uh, by Aegean archaeologists um, because, again, they don't like to speculate. And so also I think it would say if you had too much Minoan influence or on, if you admitted to too much Minoan influence on the mainland, I argue that this would be letting um, onto the mainland, into Greece, a large non-Greek, non-Indo-European influence, which kind of corrupts this whole ideology that Rebecca Fudo-Kennedy talks about of Greece being the ethnically pure childhood of Europe. So I feel like it's an issue that hasn't been settled yet. I am now leaning towards the idea that there was some kind of civil war on Crete. There was a depopulation. Some people fled. Oh, and I want to just move back to the trade and influence question for a moment, if I can. 
Um, I think it's important to mention that during the height of the Minoan palatial era, we see Minoan frescoes at a number of Near Eastern sites. At the site of Alalak, which is now in Turkey, um, Katna in Syria, um, in the Canaanite palace at Tel Kabri, where Eric Klein excavates in Israel, and at Tel Daba, which was, um, it was originally a Hyksos kingdom, but then became part of the new kingdom of the 18th dynasty. You have bull leaping scenes and frescoes. And what this might indicate is the temporary exchange of skilled workers. For example, if you're my brother King living in Oklahoma and I'm your sister queen living here in Melbourne and you sent me um, a nice box of C's candy and I didn't want to spend money on another box of C's candy, I might send an artist to your house to paint some walls for you. And that way I not only get that, I, get, I not only give you a gift, you have to feed that person while they're there working. And this is not something I'm making up. I mean, we don't have any, you know, we don't have any written evidence for it in the Minoan world, but we do know there was a gift exchange of skilled workers um, from ancient Mesopotamian texts. And so now we come to obviously my all-time favorite question about any subject in the late Bronze Age, and that is how does the Bronze Age collapse affect the areas that were once under Minoan control? That's a good question. I have a whole article on this. Um, what happens is uh, there are some important centers in the post-palatial period in Crete. Um, they're not palatial centers, but you do have monumental buildings. They're kind of more Mycenaean in style. You have like halls with columns in it and shrines, and you have important buildings at Malia, um, which is just east of Knossos and further east at Sisi. And you have important uh, Mycenaean style structure at Gornia and at Hanya, where they're sending materials uh, or they're sending stirrup jars with linear B inscriptions. And Knossos, of course, is very important. And then there's a final destruction in um, Bronze Age Crete by the end of late Minoan 3B. Um, Knossos is destroyed sooner, but you have a final destruction in late Minoan 3B or abandonment. And what you start having are um, the establishment of um, what we call defensible settlements in the mountains. And this is the what we call the 3C period. It's the 12th century. It's the era of the sea people. I actually worked at one of these sites at Cavusi. Um, and there's an archaeologist. Oh, you should really talk to him. His name is Krzysztof Nowitzki. He documented 1,000. Um, he documented 1,000 uh, defensible settlements in post-palatial Crete. And so what seems to happen is when the Mycenaean palaces were destroyed on the mainland, this um, caused a collapse of the sea lanes and maritime security. And I've argued that based on what we know from like the Barbary pirates, the Barbary pirates, their tendency was to attack at night and desolate coastlines. And probably something similar was happening on Crete. And this is why they moved to the mountains. Uh, because they're safe. A few of these sites may have even been pirate hideouts, and they could have uh, done their shepherding and their growing at these sites. They were defensible. They were um, well away from the shoreline. And 
So this is what happens with post-palatial society. And there's some evidence too of people moving around. Um, for example, there's a site, it's not fully published, but it's another one of these um, refuge settlement sites called Camelevery. Um, and it's near Heraklion. And in one of the houses they found a now two sword. And we all know what the now two swords represent as well as an Italian razor, which could mean somebody who had actually come from Italy or had been working with Italians or maybe part of a pirate group crew. We really don't know. All we know is that we have these sorts of Italian style objects coming in and you start to get a mixed population and a population that is concerned with maintaining um, its security. And they live in very simple, like, uh, two to three room structures made out of uh, drywall masonry and mud brick and they worship in small bench shrines where they um, have what they call the goddess with upraised arms. I'm not sure if it's a goddess, maybe it's a priestess acting as an intercessor, but in any case they have these uh, religious items placed in these small sanctuaries with benches and that's kind of what happens to create um, in the era of the collapse. They survive, but they survive on a very small scale. Oh, I can add one more thing. Eventually, and this is even quite a while later, um, Crete uh, becomes very strong with the Dorian dialect, uh, I'd say in the eighth century BCE. And you still have sort of um, remnants of the Minoan uh, memory culture going on. You have it, a lot of the palaces and villas, you have going on what they call ruin cults where uh, groups of elites were holding feasts outside the ruins of the Minoan palaces and leaving offerings. And this might've been a way of trying to uh, create uh, a new and prestigious genealogy for themselves where they could again uh, become powerful. But uh, this is the era where we start to see the Greek polis or city-state emerge. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you all for joining us here today at the study of antiquity and the Middle Ages with one of our favorite guests, and that is Dr. Louise Hitchcock. Dr. Hitchcock, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, you're very welcome. Happy to do it. And as a reminder to our subscribers, don't forget to check out the links in the video description below, where it will take you to a variety of outlets to where not only can you purchase the books that she has written that I highly recommend, but also her academia profile to where she can provide us with so much knowledge and deeper insights into the subjects that we love and that we want to learn more about. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you all so much and have a wonderful night.